0: Sometime this fall,
1: it'll be the 20th anniversary of my very first blog post. And over the past two decades, writing online shaped my life in profound ways. Now, as is probably self-evident at this point, I love making work to share in public. I revel in taking a half-formed thought, massaging it into a thesis, and fleshing it out into a fully-formed argument to share with others. I live so much of my life in my own mind, and writing online gives me a way to share that life with you. Of course, I didn't know all of that in 2003. I don't remember how I learned about blogging or what I expected from the practice, But what started as a tacitly public journal, quickly turned into a node that connected me with former classmates and interested strangers alike. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. In October 2010, writer Ursula K. Le Guin started her blog, and she wrote about why she hadn't started one sooner. She said that she never wanted to blog before, but had been inspired to give it a try after learning about Jose Saramago's blog. Another reason she gave for not starting a blog sooner was the concern that her readers would expect her to interact with them. She wrote, I was also put off by the idea that a blog ought to be interactive, that the blogger is expected to read people's comments in order to reply to them and carry on a limitless conversation with strangers. I am much too introverted to want to do that at all. I am happy with strangers only if I can write a story or a poem and hide from them behind it, letting it speak for me. Now as she closed out that first blog post, Le Guin wrote that when she realized that Saramago didn't interact with readers of his blog, she decided she could borrow that freedom from him too. I am hyperconscious of other people's expectations. When I was younger, and certainly when I first started blogging as a college senior, I was blissfully unaware of most of them. But unfortunately, that led to a lot of misunderstandings in which I was always the party at fault. So over time, I learned to pay closer and closer attention to what I should be doing in any situation that is remotely social. Of course, The expectations all bend over backward to meet. don't even have to be real expectations. I'd rather play it safe and assume the most stringent expectations others could possibly hold as a bar I need to clear. Knowing that I don't fully understand the rules of a given social situation, I'll construct an elaborate framework of rules for myself. Now, I was going to say that this works for me until it doesn't. But the truth is that it doesn't ever really work. It just produces hyper-vigilant anxiety, over-functioning, and emotional exhaustion. I might feel like I'm keeping my head above water for a time, but in reality, I'm drowning. The way that I perceive what others expect from me and how I act to meet those perceived expectations drains my capacity. But again, this is a fairly recent revelation. As a college senior blogging in 2003, I was naive to my own limitations. The potential, as Le Guin put it, to carry on a limitless conversation with strangers, well, it seemed to be all upside. But in hindsight, I know that my innocent embrace of limitlessness as a teenager and young adult led to clinical depression and autistic burnout. My blog certainly didn't cause the downward spiral I experienced immediately after graduation, but I do think it contained all of the signs of the way I overextended myself. It can seem like limitlessness is synonymous with freedom, but it's often a yoke that ties us to unsatisfiable expectations. Operating as if I have no limits guarantees that my best efforts will always feel inadequate. Le Guin granted herself the freedom to write online by allowing herself a limitation of interaction. She took the expectation off the table. By denying the expectation to respond to comments or encourage parasocial relationships with her readers, she opened the door to connecting with more people through her work. One day, I hope to be half as wise as Le Guin. Like Le Guin, I prefer to let my work speak for me. It's already a direct or indirect response to the comments and messages I receive. It's my half of a conversation, but with the framework of social expectations that I'm most comfortable with. And yet, in the parasocial landscape of our time, I fear that all of the public work I make just isn't enough. I worry that my half of the conversation isn't enough, at least not without devoting myself to hyper-responsiveness in the wake of that work. It was with the backdrop of this persistent fear that I noticed a post that Randy Buckley, the creator of Healthy Boundaries for Kind People, made on LinkedIn. The post was about an author who received pushback for having boundaries. In no uncertain terms, Randy laid out how no one involved was entitled to anything beyond the work this person had already offered, no matter how friendly or intimate the relationship might seem on the receiving end. Randy wrote about how people want to make an impact, even a connection, and that's why they make art movies, books, and blogs, they are containers for what they can offer to those who want to listen, watch, or read. But those creators have neither the capacity nor the responsibility to attend to their listeners, viewers, or readers individually. She wrote, while these creators appreciate that they have had a positive impact, the art itself was the container. The art itself was the container. The moment I read that line, I felt a wave of relief wash over me. And I haven't stopped thinking about that line for months. It's what Le Guin was getting at, I think. It's the hope I build into every episode I put out or essay I write. And it's why I reached out to Randy to chat.
0: So I think, to a large extent, we have morphed into trying to become the medium of social media itself. Um, Social media being very accessible 24-7, and we have conflated us with the medium. And so we try to match that. If we become the medium of social media, what is our message?
1: What's the character of our mediated online selves? We've taken on the defining character of the platforms we use, always on always accessible, always having something new to say or share. We mold ourselves to fit the standard of parasocial intimacy endemic to social media spaces and the internet at large. While the social media era has introduced this issue to a massive segment of the population, Randy first saw this dynamic working
0: with household names in the 90s. I was coaching on the set of friends long ago, clearly. I was working on the set of friends and other very well-known people. And what I started to see time and time again was the public or their fans or their audience thought they had a very close, emotional, if not intimate relationship with them. Because familiarity, they saw them all the time. They thought they knew them. They, They saw the weekly, whatever that would be. But as the actor or person on the screen, they had no idea who these people were. And so it was this constant negotiation of people feeling like they should have unlimited access or some access to people where well, they were like, whoa, this, I don't even know if this is safe. But that familiarity became a thing. And I, I have seen that happen now on social media. This leads to Randy's
1: approach to personal boundaries. Without clear and solid personal boundaries, we mold ourselves to others' expectations, including the way those expectations feed the always-on, always-accessible character of our online personas. So real quick, what are boundaries? Randy says boundaries are expectation management boundaries are your values in action. They're the conditions we need for others to get us at our best.
0: Boundaries are the conditions you need to live the life and have the relationships you desire. Can somebody disagree with that? Absolutely. Because it's about finding the definition that works. for you. But for me, knowing what those conditions are, that's really, really important to me. Because if I'm in this heightened state all the time, you're not going to get my best. You actually will get it for about three hours and then you know, that cortisol, an adrenaline crash. (laughs) For me, this means
1: that boundaries are a framework I can use to counteract the gravitational pull of what I assume other people's expectations are. I may never be able to stop second guessing what I'm supposed to do in a social situation, but I can know what I'm able to do regardless of what those expectations are. Now, to use that framework, Randy says, I need to be confident in the completeness and enoughness of who I am and what I create. So
0: what we create, who we are, is complete in and of itself. We don't have to have this lingering sense of I owe more, I owe more. Um, they like it, so I owe more. If we want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But I don't think there has to be an obligation to do that. let what you've done stand and be complete.
1: Just because our followers like what we've made or have been impacted by our ideas doesn't mean that we owe them more. Now, I will fully admit that the lingering sense of I owe more is a much louder voice than the one that says this is enough almost every day. I'm constantly at war with my perception that others perceive me as cold and uncaring. I battle the same misunderstandings that autistic women have battled for centuries. I've bent over backward to avoid that perception so many times that each new attempt risks breaking my back. And at the same time, I know that I'm not cold and uncaring because the idea that I've disappointed, hurt, or left someone feeling unappreciated breaks my heart. Other than the hormones of middle age, this concern is probably the biggest contributor to my ongoing insomnia. When we've operated from the I owe more mindset for so long, perhaps even our whole lives, it's hard to know what our boundaries might even be. And it's tempting to think that we need to come to terms with being enough and complete before we are allowed to name or uphold boundaries.
0: Randy says that's a myth. And there's a myth that you have to know what your boundaries are before you can have them. And that, that just, that makes me itchy all over because sometimes we don't know our bottom line or don't know what situation doesn't work for us anymore until it just happened. <laughs> oh, Wow not okay anymore. That said, it's worth the energy to get clearer about the boundaries you can anticipate needing. There's an exercise I walk people through that anybody can do on their own. And that is thinking about a time in life where things were rocking, where things were flowing. It felt really, really good. And I have the caveat, if you haven't experienced that time in life, what do you think would be going on? What are the conditions happening that are supporting things just working out, flowing, you feeling really good about the work you're doing, who you are in the world, what were the conditions going on then? Because they're very likely similar conditions or circumstances um, that you require now because you're the same person. Obviously, we ebb and flow and evolve. But by and large, those are going to be the things that provide the environment for you to be at your best, to do at your best work.
1: What are the conditions you need to be at your best? It's quite possible that some of your ideal conditions are a bit out of reach. They may even seem infeasible for cultural or economic reasons. In extreme, but not unusual scenarios, the conditions we need to be at our best might even put us at risk of harm. But when you know what you need, you can start taking steps to realize the scenario in which you do have the conditions you need to be at your best.
2: People pleasing is not bad. People pleasing
1: at the cost of your sanity is safety, peace. It is. That's Jordan Maney. Jordan specializes in coaching people she calls bleeding hearts and helps them find radical joy, which inevitably includes some work on boundaries and expectations. So like the first time you try
2: and build a boundary, it usually comes off more as a request.
1: Hey, it would be really
2: great. And you know, soft tones and all that other stuff. Then I think when you get really clear at all the ways that you haven't advocated for yourself, the realization that no one else is going to advocate and protect your peace more than you.
1: Um, there's a lot of like the resentment and anger really comes up. Boundaries become forceful, even aggressive demands. But Jordan cautions that that's not really sustainable either. So she suggests a third way. When a a boundary is both declaration
2: and invitation, like this is going to happen, but I'm going to invite you in to navigate how you want to work within it or around that or invite you, if it doesn't work for you, to be like, cool, deuces, I'm out. (laughs) Like, I, I can't, this doesn't work for me, right?
1: Jordan has a brilliant list of boundaries on the About page of her website. Here's one that really stood out to me and illustrates what she said about her boundaries being both a declaration and an invitation. Quote, We prioritize in-depth communication over constant accessibility to us via social and our email inbox. So expect calls and emails to be returned thoughtfully within 72 hours. If it's an emergency, ask yourself what constitutes an emergency and why not having immediate access to us makes you uncomfortable.
2: When you make a boundary, when you're putting like a stake in the ground and saying like, yo, you can't cross here. When you're simply just kind of like, if you come near this thing, it's, oh, it's game over. When you, you have lived a life where you don't have boundaries and suddenly you're like, oh, I have all the boundaries. It can be jarring for people and not saying like give people more grace than you're giving yourself. But the invitation to me It's about allowing people to interact with your boundary. It doesn't shift the fact that the stake is in the ground. But like, if you want to come forward and find out what happens when you cross the fence or try and attempt to cross the fence, that's on you. If you want to figure out what it takes for me to be like, hey, you can come in. Cool. But it's really an invitation to allow you some level of engagement in this thing. I think boundaries need to be a little collaborative in that way because our boundaries are about protecting ourselves, but they're things that we're
1: communicating to other people. The invitation is a way to encourage mutual understanding of the boundary. Now, what if you're the person who's felt put off by someone else's boundary? Maybe you've felt hurt or unappreciated because a comment, DM, or email went unanswered. Maybe you thought you were entitled to more than you received. We've all been that person at some time in our lives. How can we
0: re-examine the impulse to push back? Ask whether maybe or not the person operates differently than you do. But we make a lot of assumptions in our human behavior based on what works for us. It might not be the same operating system, so to speak. somebody else and so i just think is this a story i'm making up or is this have they told me this or am i filling in a lot of blanks which we do what if i redefined boundaries as respect they start to see maybe that's what this other person's doing too and it's not about me it's about what they're doing so they can be at their best work maybe they're doing that too and maybe not maybe somebody's just dropped the ball right that that happens and when you pay for something, it's fair to there be an expectation you're going to get what you paid for. I don't think expectation in and of itself is bad. It's like I don't think judgment is necessarily bad. <laughs> Those are good skills to discernment to be able to have. But I think it's really important to say, is this my story or is it possible they have boundaries or and or operate just differently than I do? And I don't have to be responsible for making up a story Well, as an autistic person who
1: operates very differently than (laughs) the average person, I really appreciate that response. Instead of projecting those assumptions or expectations onto someone else, we can remain open to their experience or needs being different from our own. Are you trying to fill in the blanks with your own desires, needs, or preferences? rather than accepting that the other person fills in those blanks differently? As an autistic person who operates very differently from most people, this is my world. I can never assume that the way I would fill in the blanks matches the way someone else would fill in the blanks. I'm acutely aware that the person on the other end of the Zoom, social media account, or social interaction experiences things differently than I do. And yes, it's a lot of work, but you know, it would be less work if others did the same. And maybe that's what we should expect from each other. We each have a responsibility to stay open to the likelihood that those we interact with, online or off, aren't using the same operating system we are. When we recognize that we don't all share the same capacity or capabilities, we can avoid jumping to conclusions or filling in blanks we just don't have the answers to. And at the same time, we can free ourselves to make the public work we want to make. Huge thanks to Randy Buckley and Jordan Maney for their wise words. You can find out more about Randy Buckley and her program, Healthy Boundaries for Kind People, at randybuckley.com. And you can find out more about Jordan Maney at jordanmaney.com. Changing your relationship to work is hard. There is a ton of social conditioning, economic friction, and even relationship challenges to wade through. Even if you really want to change, you can easily get caught up in old patterns. No one knows this better than the coaches, consultants, managers, and guides of all kinds who work with people who, well, work. If you're one of those guides, you already have a bunch of tools for helping people know what their values are and what really matters to them. You have tools for helping people identify their next steps. But where you might feel a bit uneasy is helping your clients or team members identify the external influences that keep them stuck or stressed. That's why I'm leading a 12-week certificate program called Work in Practice. You'll learn how to spot the social, political, and economic systems that make change hard. Because until we can unravel those systems and question our most basic assumptions about work, we won't be able to break the cycle and imagine a more sustainable and nourishing way forward. Work in Practice starts September 20th. Learn more about the program and view the program syllabus at workinpractice.life. That's workinpractice.life. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen, Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer, and Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutanaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispel.